The Provoke Podcast, brought to you by Provoke Media and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers. Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of our Provoke Media Podcast. I am here with Stephen Miller from Kivit, um, a longtime friend and supporter of Provoke. Um, and an attendee at our Provoke Global Summit, which took place three weeks ago and from which I am somehow still recovering. Um, it was um, a really interesting um, event in that it was the first time that we had reconvened the global industry uh, post-pandemic. It was the first time that we'd offered a hybrid event. So we had attendees in the room and also checking in remotely. And we had um, what felt to me like a really top tier um, level of um, content at the event. Um, and uh, I think it was probably your first Provoke Global, Stephen. Yep. Um, without without fishing for compliments, tell me what you <laughs> thought about the, the industry coming together um, after a three-year hiatus and discussing some of the sort of high-profile issues that we're going to be facing over the next 12 months. Sure. Well, thank you, Paul, for having me. Um, it, it was a great summit. And, and I'll tell you, um, there, there are a few reasons. First of all, um, I'm relatively new to the PR industry, right? So I come from a background of political advertising and, and, and sort of broader comms consulting. So first of all, you know, there is no age limit to professional development. And, and I, I thank Kivit for sending me to the summit. And there were people, of you know, first time entry level, even there were students there too, you know, execs and founders of some of the biggest firms in the industry. So it was, it was great to to learn, I think we're a very competitive industry and, and to a degree, a secretive industry. You know, sometimes you're exposed to another firm if you share a client but, and you might see their deck, so to speak, but rarely are we convening to share ideas. And so I found it to be extremely beneficial to be there, to hear from competitors, you know, to speak, you know, honestly and publicly, to hear also from clients, right? So those those chief communications officers from, from major companies, um, the lawyers who are advising the industry, commentators, members of the media. So I learned a lot. I think it was a really, really uh, uh, exciting few days in DC. It was also an interesting time. Think about it. It feels like so long ago. It was right before the midterms um, and, and uh, before a lot of things that have happened broadly in the macroeconomic and, and business world. So I really enjoyed it. Obviously, we were also there for the Sabre Awards, and that was a really fun event both uh, to win, but also to see, you know, who you beat and who you, who you lost to um, and uh, um, have some thoughts on that. So it was a really beneficial event. I, I wish our industry could come together more um, uh, in, in a collaborative way like that. And uh, so I'll be back next year. Yeah, one of the one of the things that has kept me interested in in public relations for more than thirty years is that we are an industry that is sort of driven by ideas, and and there are always new ideas, and um, you know when when the the event is going on, 
um, as as part of the editorial team, I am, as you can imagine, very focused on that session and whatever news is coming out of that session. Um, and so it sort of goes by in in chunks of of content that I think yeah. about as stories. Uh, but one of the things we wanted to do with this podcast um, was to look at some of the sort of broader themes that emerged at the conference um, mm -hmm. that sort of spanned multiple sessions um, and were subtext for other sessions. Um, yeah. And there are sort of several of those areas that, um, that, that I'd like to explore over the next sort of 30, 40 minutes. Um, and, and if you have anything that you want to contribute beyond mm -hmm. what's on top of mind for me, um, that'd be great. Let, let's start with a topic that in a lot of ways has dominated conversation in, in our industry um, for the last four or five years. Um, and that's the rise of purpose and the preeminence of purpose, uh, both in um, in branding and marketing, corporate mm -hmm. reputation management, and um, and in the awards competitions that that we do, that I know you're very familiar with. Um, and there were a couple of purpose-driven sessions there that that I found particularly interesting. The first was. Um, Corey McKenna from um, uh, Corey McKenna from from uh, Patagonia, talking about um, their decision to give the company over to the planet, as it were, um, mm -hmm. which is both interesting in that it refutes the idea that companies can't commit wholeheartedly to to purpose because at the end of the day, profit will drive everything. Um, but was also interesting to me because it seems to me something that is unlikely to be duplicated or replicated. So what, sure. were, the, what were the lessons that you took away from, from that discussion and, and, and mm -hmm. purpose broadly at the, at the yeah. end? Um, she was fascinating. And to hear her, um, you know, the global head of comps for Patagonia, brand I love, but also had made a lot of news right before the summit um, there was one, so I'm going to come back to purpose in ESG, but I'm going to focus on one sentence she said that was burned in my mind, which was see, she, when they were, she was discussing the behind the scenes of this announcement and the rollout, she said, employees were a key stakeholder and she spent time speaking about how, how they would roll it out to employees. And I connect it to um, AJ Jones, the CCO of Starbucks, was in, had an incredible conversation that touched on a, a lot of issues, um, you know, from ESG uh, to you know diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and yeah. just sort of the global nature of Starbucks. I, I didn't realize uh, how, how global they were, and, and working under different CEOs, um, but he kept referring to his employees as partners and it was very purposeful how he uh spoke about his employees and and referenced them and so uh, i had a few sort of broad takeaways from the summit but one was that even when we were discussing purpose and and esg and, and corporate social responsibility and um 
what I heard from the in-house communicators, and you had the highest level of the highest levels, the biggest companies, you know, in America and the world, was that the internal, what we call internal communications, that that group of employees as stakeholders is more important than ever. In fact, I believe it was AJ Jones who spoke about the cons- the concentric circles, you know, and then that employees being that first circle. And we don't always think like that. And so as I as I think about what we heard, one big takeaway for me from the summit is that, and, and obviously a lot's happened in business since the summit, that this has sort of amplified the importance of this, is that internal communications, which is how we talk about things, what we talk about, um, the content we develop, thinking about that audience first, um, the, the the platforms and mediums that we use to speak to employees that are both corporate executives to you know hourly waged employees and call centers and 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 people you know at, at retail at the forefront of retail, the then internal communications is going to be key going into twenty twenty three, and and obviously you know the layoffs from massive corporates uh, corporations in America of late has only sort of amplified that. Um, so I, 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 you know, I want to come back to purpose, but the first sort of one of the key takeaways for me at the summit was this focus on internal communication. And we do, you know, I can we do internal communications. We don't have it on our website. It is, you know, this is what we do, but we're, we've been, I look back, you know, I sat in the summit and I thought back on the last six months of my work at Kibbit and, only looking backwards after hearing what I heard at the summit, could I put the pieces of the puzzle together and say, yes, I was creating video content for employees. I was creating message playbooks for entire departments on how to speak to their employees. And it just sort of, in my mind, was wrapped in the bucket of, of communications, but I see now as more intentional. Um, okay. Let's let's stay with that employee communications theme for a mm-hmm. second then, because we also had um, Johnny Taylor from the Society of Human Resources Management um, mm. talking about you know what's going on inside companies and how critical the employee audience is. Um, you know what we've seen over the last few years, whether it is workforce diversity, another big theme of of the conference, um, whether it's um, returning to the office post-pandemic, whether it's employees as brand ambassadors, which was something that both Patagonia and Starbucks touched on, and that certainly came through in some of the pharmaceutical discussions as well with Pfizer. Um, I wonder whether you sense a disconnect between how big a priority internal stakeholders are for CEOs and CCOs, and how much thought they get in the agency world. Um, you know, employee communications as a practice is still a fairly small part of even the biggest agencies. I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm plucking numbers out of the air here, but sure. you know, I doubt whether there are many mainstream PR firms there that would put more than 10% um, or even more than 5% of their revenues in the internal communications bucket. So are yeah. we are we missing an opportunity as an industry there? Are, we, are, there, are there expectations from clients that we are not rising to? 
Yeah, that's interesting, Paul. I, I almost now having this conversation with you and having a time this on putting sort of looking backwards and putting pieces of the puzzle together. And I think you're right because what I've noticed at Kivit and and certainly what we heard at the summit um, is also uh, departments that are HR oriented coming to us for communication support. Now, these are companies that have separate communications departments, but I've seen um, the challenges and it started maybe six, eight months, nine months ago with, with the issue of recruitment when the economy was hot and people were competing against, you know, um, uh, the best employers, the best employees, you know, in the market. It started with how do we keep, um, we're hearing more about retention. Um, that was also something now I'm thinking back during COVID, especially with the, those companies and public agencies that dealt with essential workers who were exhausted, really exhausted during the pandemic. It was an issue of retention. And um, and now I think, especially as ESG and purpose has become the forefront of communications, I think that the internal audience might have been secondary uh, in the mind of many communicators and now they're catching up to realize that those issues of purpose of mission of values um we have to even double down and maybe start with our our employees as as a stakeholder group so i think there's huge opportunity you know it reminds me we do a lot of work in the higher education space and it's you know around admissions and you know how to talk to 17 year olds and how to talk to parents of 17 year olds um and it's recruitment in a different way, but I've learned a lot from it. And I see that that work is now bleeding into the corporate world of how do we talk to our future potential employees? How do we talk to our current employees better? And part of this is organizational, Paul, and you might know this, you certainly will know this better than me, but when you structure your comms in a company and, and HR, you know, the collaboration and cooperation of those two teams is has never been more important. And I think typically they're pretty separate and re the reporting structure is often pretty separate. And so I think we are often, we are seeing ourselves, and I can think of a few accounts where this is relevant now, as sort of a bridge agency that is working with comms and with HR on these internal communications issues. So they're very, very important. I think for any agency listening out there that hasn't explored this, it might be a way to expand scopes within your current clients and to go after new opportunities. Let's um, let's come back to the the purpose stuff. As you say, they, they, there's certainly yeah. an overlap there. Um, and I think, you know, committing, committing to a purpose without explaining to your employees what it is, why it is, why it's important, mm -hmm. you, how it fits with your core values is very important. At the same time, we heard from companies where it seemed to me that employees were to a certain extent driving the involvement with purpose. Um, so it was employee expectations that a company would take a political position, for example, on on issues like the um, LGBTQ um, laws that are being passed in Republican states, like the attack on women's health care that's, that's going on in America right now. Um, that, you know, a lot of that was being driven by employees. And what we were hearing was that, yes, that's 
stakeholders are driving a lot of that engagement, but also perhaps the, the risks of engaging around controversial political and purpose-driven topics were going up. Um, is that is that something that you're aware of, that your clients sure. have been talking about, that, um, you know, requires now a more structured ad- approach than just... Um, you know, we think we think this is a good way for us to get some attention. Yeah. You know, you, you just you, you hit on a few of the challenges and these are the challenges that clients are coming to us. And obviously, you know, uh, uh, other companies in the industry to help figure out. And, um, you know, we at Kivit, we have nearly 10 percent of our headcount is in our data and analytics, sort of what we call our insights team. And we try to bring a lot of data to the question of purpose in ESG. And I'll give you some examples of what what some of these challenges are. First of all, language, right? So once you've committed to speaking about a topic, you know, what are the words to use? And oftentimes, you know, companies and and, and communication professionals sitting in headquarters don't necessarily have a strong sense of what the language that their key stakeholders are using. So, you know, one thing we do is analyses of, um, of uh, letters and public statements from investors and in, in, uh, either private investors or institutional investors to see how they talk about issues like, for example, sustainability versus how companies and, and, and um, baskets of different industries are talking and where that mismatch is and how we can help, you know, lead companies to use the right language. So I think, uh, but, but broadly speaking, let me take a step back. There is the risk of engaging and there is the risk of not engaging. And by the way, that's true. I remember, you know, I come from politics, you know, you're attacked on an issue, you know, do you engage on it, which might elevate it, or do you, you know, um, ignore it and and watch or hope to watch it go away? And that's that's sort of the first question. But even since the summit, you know, we think about Adidas, you know, and, and the Kanye, uh, not just Adidas, the many companies that had to deal with, um, uh, the controversy regarding Kanye's sort of anti-Semitic rants, you know, this is no company is immune to uh, the question of purpose and what we will say publicly about our mission and our values. And so, you know, the first thing that, that we're often doing is, is, you know, if you don't have internally, you know, your sort of values, you know, uh, uh, organized, you need to do that. Right. So, you know, it, it do, you can't communicate on values if you don't know what your values are. And that's the first thing to do. Then it's a question of where do you, how do you, how do you comment? And you can't go further than your stakeholders is is sort of the back of napkin rule of thumb we've been following. So you can't go further than your employees. You can't go further than your investors. Um, You can't go further than your regulators. But the opposite is true. You can't lag too far behind your employees. You can't lag too far behind your investors. You can't lag too far behind your regulators. So knowing where each of those communities stand, the language they're using, how they're talking about it is really important. You know, we had um, a conversation with the executive uh, communications team of a Fortune 100 recently that suggested that their CEO sees 50% of their job as communications. And, and I think we're seeing more and more of that. In fact, I think, Paul, you published some some data about the the, the um, job descriptions of CEOs, you know, over time, um, including more and more about communications. So this is part of the CEO's job, whether they want it to be or not. 
And these communications departments that we're advising and, and the CEOs that we're advising acknowledge that. So I think you have to know where you, your stakeholders stand and almost you have to step away from your personal beliefs and understand your employees, your investors, your regulators and policymakers where they are. And, and that gives you the strike zone within which to play. And so I, I was interested when you when you were talking about the, the language that you use, um, because I suspect that there's a lack of precision um, around that still for a lot of organizations and how they talk about um, how they talk about purpose driven work and how they allow others to define the conversation around purpose driven work and certainly there were there were two or three sessions um at the conference i'm thinking about frank bruni from from uh the new york times and duke university and uh, who who was talking about the challenges of knowing when to when and how to take a stand on issues and um frank and i appear to share a loathing of the term woke, which has been used now to describe um, both both liberals and corporations. And this idea that, that there is a woke capitalism that is somehow about companies, and, and I understand why they're vulnerable to this charge, right? That, that companies doing performative purpose um, but the reality is that most purpose activities are both driven by and vindicated by the bottom line because they are what stakeholders, employees and customers and communities um, and, and increasingly shareholders are um, are increasingly demanding. And um, I don't I don't know if you worked on the um, the award winning um inbev campaign that um that that kivit had uh, picked up a global saber for at the end of the the summit uh, but that seemed to me to be a great example of a campaign that was both driven by and vindicated by the data yeah well I, you know i'm happy to talk about anheuser bush is a, a great company and and um, we're honored to work with them they are emblematic of you know, any agency that deals with, you know, uh, a major national company, any company that's not local or regional, you know, is is dealing with a company, you know, is dealing with a client that can neither be a red or blue client. So, you know, if, you know, you're a, a beer or, or beverage company, uh, you can't be a, a, a blue beverage company or red beverage company. You have to be, you know, an America, an American beverage company. That's true from any industry, healthcare, technology, finance, you know, if you cross geographic borders in America, you have to be, you know, careful that you are not being drawn into this conversation about wokeism. And, 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 and that's challenging, by the way, we are, we are working with so many clients on that very challenge now. And remember, we met in DC ahead of the midterms with a democratic president and a democratic, uh, you know, house uh, and Senate, uh, you know, pessimistic about where the midterms would go, but you know, it was DC was blue. And, and, and now you sort of, you know, with the House won by the Republicans and certainly Trump's announcement, you know, even so much has happened in three weeks, Paul. It's really incredible. Oh, you I know. know. Twi Twitter wasn't even owned by Elon Musk. Right, I mean, right, right. Global Summit. I mean, I, right. Yeah. 
um, you know, nobody had taken over the official Eli Lilly account and offered free right. insulin to people. I mean, exactly. the, the pace at which events have overtaken even the content of of a pretty timely conference like ours yeah. is astonishing. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So is it just um and, and I want to come back to that that speed and adaptation point. But Anheuser Busch is a great example. First of all, they're a great company, you know, they're a beverage company. It's 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 Bud Light and it's Stella and it's you know Cutwater and and Budweiser and and um seltzers and you know so it's a great product and um I, you know my outside perspective is I think they're they're a great company to work for. They they just attract great talent. They're, they're you know a lot of fun people. I, New York. I've been out to St. Louis headquarters a few times and just great people. So, so you start with a great product, great people, and a company that actually does good, right? So that makes our job easier, whether it's on the sustainability and, and support for farmers and um, uh, uh, small businesses and what they do in crises with canned water and producing hand sanitizer. This isn't an ad for, for Anheuser-Busch, but I'm saying that as, as, you know, there are companies that are more challenging. This is a company that's a great, great partner to work with. What I would say, the key to the corporate reputation work we do with Anheuser Busch and why they they are um, make our lives easier and make the campaign so successful is one of those great challenges. And I know you're familiar with is defining your audience. And I think Anheuser Busch, um, you know, on the corporate side, so we don't work with you know the beverages and we work with the corporate brand. Um, they have a strong sense of who they're trying to speak to. And when you know the kinds of people that you're trying to speak to and you really sharpen down that audience to a select, and, and that could be hundreds of thousands of people, could even be millions of people. But when you have a strong sense of who you're trying to speak to, everything flows from there because then we can go into the data of what is the creative and the messaging that's going to resonate with these people? What are the methodologies? What are the platforms? What are the mediums to get our message out? And who are the messengers that are going to be most effective? And um, and so that's why I think Anheuser-Busch, one of the reasons it's been so successful, we worked with them to really define, and this has been since 2018, to define that audience. And then from there, and obviously there's adjustments and there's adaptations, but uh, that's, I think, the secret sauce, if I'm allowed to say it publicly, on Anheuser-Busch is they have a strong sense of who they're trying to speak to and who they're not trying to speak to. And I think that is a challenge in today's America and the, and the divisiveness of blue America and red America is understanding who you're talking. I'll give you a personal example, Paul. I grew up in Louisiana, right? And so, and I'm, I'm today a New York City ad executive and, you know, communications professional, but I grew up in Louisiana. So where I grew up, if you were environmentalist, okay, you cared about the wetlands, you cared about wildlife um, just as much as you did about climate. And as a New York City uh, Democrat, um, you know, wetlands and wildlife are far, far below the broad global concept of climate change and, and net zero for the activists, for an environmentalist in New York City. Now, if I hadn't grown up in Louisiana and I only grew up in my New York City sort of progressive bubble, um, I might not understand that part of America and also the bridge to that part of America. And I think, um, you know, uh, we mentioned uh, diversity earlier, and I'm, I'm not an expert on diversity. We have a lot to do as, as an industry and and, and um, geographic diversity is not the top, uh, uh, co you know, topic of diversity. But 
but it's something that uh, I think is um, important as well, because when we're, you know, I look at our company, we, you know, I'm from Louisiana, people from Texas, people from the Midwest. And when you put together an account team, and I would say this, anybody listening, you know, look at your geographic diversity, people from Florida, people from Boston, Chicago, coming together, people from, you know, Kansas, California, um, can provide the geographic polarization of America. And you look at the results of the midterms and the blue sort of coasts and the red in between. It's really important to have all those voices on the account to give the best advice to these companies that are facing this great sort of 2022 and 2023 and beyond challenge of how do I as a company speak and remain above the the polarization of blue America and red America. So Anheuser-Busch does a great, great job at this. They know who their audience is and that that makes it all, um, allows us to talk about topics like sustainability in a way that speaks to both red America and blue America and their, their target audience. So um, uh, we were honored to get that award and, and to share the night with uh, Manhauser-Busch team and uh, they do great work. We're, we're really excited to be working with them. You've gotten recognition over the years, including um, from from Provoke, um, for the use of, of data and analytics at um, at Kivit, and that was obviously um, another fairly constant drumbeat during during the conference. Was that as an industry we need to be uh, more data driven, both in the way that we approach campaign planning. And um, also in the way that we demonstrate the value of what we do, um, this is this is something that you know certainly I'm, I'm guessing the first ever global summit long before we rebranded it as Provoke Global um, had sessions on the same topic. It, why have we been so slow? Do you do you think to um, to to adopt? those kind of um, data-driven approaches. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Paul, you, you've forgotten more about this industry than, than I'll ever know. So I don't, I don't have the long perspective that you have as far as whether we were slow to adopt. But adaptation is certainly a theme that I saw in the summit in that this industry is constantly adapting based on the needs of our clients. And so... You know, you think about ESG, right? So, uh, you know, we have we have done some reports for our clients, and and I, I think they'll be public soon. But, you know, we talk about the data behind ESG. Remember, ESG and came out in a UN report as a concept in the early two thousands, maybe two thousand five. It hasn't been around for twenty years. Corporate social responsibility and, and the, the concept of a purpose driven has been around, but ESG is a, you know, and um, um. 20 years ago, I don't think there were probably many companies, agencies that were focusing on this, specializing this. And, and now you, you across the board, I mean, obviously we do a ton of work in the SG space, but so do our competitors, right? And so I, I think we're we're adapting. Like when we were talking about internal communications, I think we'll see adapt. And data, but also creative, which which you had some funny thoughts on creative that I saw on stage I want to hark back upon. But, you know, the use of data, maybe the industry has been slow to adapt. But if you are an agency that is not using data today, you are behind, right? And I think that has been driven by what we've seen, the need of our, our clients and customers, and, and really what smart communications and data-driven communications can lead you to because you can be 
so precise in, in finding your audience and delivering the message to your audience and delivering the right message to your audience. You know, you had the CEO of News Whip uh, on stage at the summit. And um, he said, data builds trust. It was three words that were seared on my mind. And, right. you know, I, I, I in, in my decade of doing political campaigns around the world, you know, part of, do, you know, was my work was advertising, part of it was public opinion research, polling focus groups. Um, and it's so true. If you can bring data and be the source of that data to your client, you were building building trust because sometimes the data will be will bring good news and sometimes the data will bring bad news and sometimes the data will say continue what we're doing and that can be you the client continue what you're doing or me the consultant the agency continue what I'm doing and sometimes the data can say you need to change what you're doing and sometimes it can say me as the agency the advice I've been giving you has been wrong or not as effective as what the data suggests we need to be doing, or this has become stale and we need to pivot. So data today, not only does it build trust, but if you aren't using data as an agency, you are behind, right? And so, and that and NewsWhip is just one of, of many softwares and technology. I'll give you an example. There's technology we're using at Kivit that uses AI and machine learning to record people's faces, uh, obviously they're paid and they know what they're, what's going on. You record people's faces as they watch video advertisements. And based on the location of their eyebrows, eyes, nose, and mouth is recording attention, but also emotion or response second by second. And so, Paul, you and I might disagree on what the key word of an ad is. And in the focus group, we might hear people say one thing. But they can't lie to a camera and their facial reactions. And so we're using that technology to drive what are the visuals, what are the words, what are the styles of video? Is it, you know, CEO direct to camera? Is it animation? Is it um, uh, uh, stock footage? Is it an employee? Is it the executive? And so you have to be you have to use data today in everything you do from creative to PR, just even identifying who are the key journalists that we need to be pitching if you could give one exclusive, who would it be? My gut and your gut as a client might be wrong. And it's the data as, as um, you know, our team says, let the data set you free. The data will tell us. And if we trust the data, you know, you will build trust um, with your client. And the last thing I'll say on this is you will do better. The campaign will be more successful if you follow the data, right? So if the data you know, we'll, um, maybe we'll have a chance to talk about our work in New Jersey. We did some work for, you know, COVID-19 and the Department of Health. We followed the data and that led to the remarkable results. It wasn't, you know, I, you know we can give ourselves a credit on the creative and on the messaging and all the advertising, on the how the digital, all the complicated, all complicated ways we distributed the message. But the core, core success of that campaign was we listened we, we, we did the data collection and we let the data drive the strategy. And I think if you are an agency that's not using data-driven strategies today, you are behind, you will fall further behind. And and um, and I'm excited to see that that's where the, the industry is, is, is as far as, you know, adopting data that, you know, we are leading and, and, and many companies are as well. 
the the facial recognition stuff that you're talking about there is fascinating to me one of the more interesting discussions at the conference because because it focused on something that i know very little about was um was the, the discussion of how we're using ai and how careful we need to be about the ethical rules for using ai the the sort of garbage in garbage out phenomenon of if you're asking the wrong questions you'll get really weird answers and i that really resonated with me you also mentioned the 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 new jersey campaign um and that was um that was something i wanted to discuss a little bit in the context of disinformation uh, which was another subtext that ran through the conference. Um, we sort of kicked off with um, Jen Psaki talking about how the White House press secretary's role has changed with that sort of explosion of disinformation that we've seen over the last few years. Uh, we had um, uh, uh, Professor Jeffrey Sonnenfeld talking about um, disinformation coming out of Russia and how that has influenced political discourse in the West and, of course, the the, the war in Ukraine. Um, and obviously the pharmaceutical industry, which on the topic of vaccinations had to fight an incredible amount of disinformation, um, some of it ignorant and ill-informed, some of it malicious. And um, that that was a, a theme from sort of day one till the end of day two of the conference. I thought it was fascinating. Um, I think there's a whole other conversation to be had about our industry's role in creating some of the disinformation tools that are used today, because you can trace a lot of it back to the anti-smoking lobby and the work that PR agencies did for big tobacco 50 years ago. Climate change is another one. And now it's rebounding on us at, at the pharmaceutical industry level with, with the anti-vax sentiment. Um, but that was something that um, your other award-winning campaign at the Global Sabres, the work that you did for the New, New Jersey Department of Health around vaccinations, um, had to confront. And um, I, and and obviously the data and analytics stuff that we're talking about feeds into disinformation because you've got to know what's being said about you, who's saying it, who's believing it. So tell me a little bit about that topic um, and how sure. you dealt with it. Yeah. Um, before we get into the disinformation, you mentioned Jen Psaki, and and I just want to share an, a humbling observation that was uh, a moment from the summit, you know, she was interviewed on stage by Robert Gibbs um, and they uh, finished. It was a packed house. Paul, you know, you remember that room was was full and she was outstanding as someone who's, you know, was on the inside is now uh, as a journalist on the outside. And she walked off the stage and I just I sat and I marveled between the stage and the door. I think a dozen people asked to have their picture taken with her, Jen Psaki. And nearly all of them handed their phone to Robert Gibbs and said, will you take a picture of me and Jen Psaki? And I was just thinking how humbling of experience because for my generation, you think of you know a, a great White House press secretary, certainly Robert Gibbs is one of those oh, names. 
I think I think in my introduction, I I said, and if I didn't, I, I certainly meant to, that Robert had been my favorite White House press secretary until Jen came along. Yeah. And yeah. Jen, and, and it's it's not a reflection on Robert, it's a reflection on the degree of difficulty that that job mm-hmm. has taken on in in this crazy sort of post-Trumpian world where, you know, the the truth appears endless, endlessly fungible, and reporters come into that room with, mm-hmm. you know, an agenda that has nothing to do with fact finding. Um, and, and you know, social media is driving so much of the attention. And I mean, as great as Robert was in that role, he didn't have to deal with quite the same insanity that Jen did. So, yeah. It's you know it's gener- every generation has their challenges uh, and and it was just fun little anecdote to, that I think was humbling I'm sure for him but it was humbling for me to see you know just but, you know by the, how- way, the fact that I have a favorite White House press secretary tells you exactly how much of a beyond nerd I must be right but right right we all do um, we all do uh, and uh, uh, you know C J Craig was mine but. Uh, in any event, um, the the question was on disinformation, and 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 I'll reference our our work for the New Jersey Department of Health throughout um, the pandemic. But just in the last few weeks, what we've seen with Eli Lilly and Twitter, and and certainly what we saw in the 2020 and even the 2016 elections here, disinformation's here, and it affects every organization, and it affects every CEO. And it affects every chief communications officer of any company, period. And if you don't think it affects you or it hasn't yet affected you, it will. Um, And the opposite of disinformation is information. And in every campaign that we are looking at as an agency, to some degree, you have to ensure you're playing in both fields, that you at least have a plan and acknowledge that for every communications, there is disinformation and information. And obviously, we want to be on the side of promoting information, but the other side is battling disinformation. And ignoring disinformation is no longer an option. It really isn't an option, and, and it can have dramatic effect on you know, your stock price and the value of your company. It can have a dramatic effect on you know, your um, uh, volunteers and members, if you're an advocacy organization, um, you know, it is it is there as part of the world we live in as we and we as experts, I can't speak necessarily to the history of our involvement in it, but we as experts today have to acknowledge that disinformation is a part of every information campaign. Um, in the New Jersey Department of Health, you know, we, you know, which, you know, was not a small budget and there was federal support and, and whatnot, but the amount of disinformation, broadly speaking, in America, not just in Jersey, in America and around the world surrounding uh, the coronavirus and COVID-19 pandemic, you know, was massive. You know, we were we were not going to beat it um, uh, entirely. But again, focusing on our target audience and understanding and I'll, I'll, I'll take our listeners and viewers a little bit behind the scenes. But if you focus on understanding what is the disinformation then it will allow your information campaign to be both, you know, effective in promoting the message, but also in com- combating that dis. If you don't know 
the disinformation that your audience is exposed to, and you don't know the disinformation that they believe, then you'll never be able to combat it. So acknowledging that exists, understanding what it is, will allow for that positive information campaign. So, you know, one thing, and, and I hope I don't get in trouble for sharing this, but one thing we did, and I'm going to take you back, Paul, to um, let's call it like August of 2021. Yeah, and 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 I should say part of the fascinating piece of, of this campaign, and I'm sure many agencies out there, many professionals that face this, is when the goalposts are changing and the situation is changing. It reminds me of political campaigns, you know, um, maybe in a direct-to-consumer sort of product launch, it, it happens less. But in so much of what we do as agencies, you know, the world changes week on week. And, and certainly that was the case in COVID-19. Certainly think about, you know, when a vaccine rolled out, that who who it was, who a Department of Health in America could say was eligible changed every week. And that meant advertising changed and it changed in a dozen languages. And, you know, so August of 2021, Remember, the vaccine rollout in America was sort of quarter one, 2021. Um, and by summer 2021, if you hadn't gotten a vaccine in America, it was really by choice. You know, vaccines had been available for six months in, in, in nearly every place in America. Um, you know, and, and so if you approached the start of the school year, the start of the fall, start of the winter flu season and the holiday season if you that stretch of september october november december was going to be a very dangerous part of the year if you were entering that year unvaccinated it was by choice and new jersey is a purple state new jersey is a a, a very diverse um state and we had to increase vaccination rate we had to get people who were unvaccinated to vaccinate. And so we did some research, two methodologies. The first is we did a survey, you know, standard sort of poll, only of unvaccinated people. And by, by the way, it took longer and it was more expensive and it's a hard to reach group of people. But we did a survey and, you know, we had over a thousand respondents and it was a, a relatively sort of um uh, a sample that was reflective of the state, although there was there, there's no sort of quota to say this is who unvaccinated Americans are. And the second thing we did, we, the second thing we did was have regular conversations with um, the healthcare workers who work for the Department of Health and sort of what we would call in campaigns, sort of paid canvassers, people who were in communities on street corners, handing out materials, speaking to people one on one, having those five and ten minute conversations, sort of our qualitative source of information and a quantitative source of information. And what we found in the survey was, as I said, if you were unvaccinated, you were unvaccinated by choice. And there was a reason you were unvaccinated. And obviously everyone who was unvaccinated could be broken down to zero chance this person will ever be vaccinated to a little nudge can get them. And it was about, and then a group in the middle who was a little bit more resource involved. There was about a third, third, third. A third of unvaccinated will never be. A third with sort of heavy resources we thought we could get to, and a third just needed a nudge. Disinformation played a big role. And they were no longer scared of COVID-19. And that's what we learned. The disinformation was so strong of, you know, people survive and you don't need it and it's just a cough and people are out traveling. Remember, it was summer. Summer 2021 was fun. 
So if we were going to have an effective campaign, we could not scare them on COVID. You couldn't say, you know, people are dying from it because they saw all the news that was, was available. We couldn't say you give it to your friends and family because they knew that. What we found, and we tested all sorts of crazy ideas. One of the ideas we were most proud that we thought of it because it popped in the survey is that it wasn't the fear of COVID-19, but, but these Americans who, you know, I had family members who did not get vaccinated. I, I, I think they're, you have to respect your audience as much as you might disagree with them. These Americans were scared of hospitalization and they were scared of intubation. So they weren't scared of getting COVID. But if you said you're going to be intubated and intubation might knock some teeth out and hospitalization, you know, doesn't look fun for anybody being in a bed gown, that they were scared of. And so that led us to uh, an advertisement and, and a series of, of radio and TV and digital ads that didn't play up the effects of COVID but played up the hospitalization that could happen to you. And you don't want to be in the hospital. So do you want to get COVID? Yeah, I don't care at this point. Do you want to be in the hospital? Absolutely not. And so that was effective. And the other piece, and I'll finish with this, is um, we took the gloves off. You know, part of creative today, um, and I'll go off on a tangent. We spoke about the, the machine learning and the AI testing we're doing. Um, part of this is um, you have to have creative that cuts through the clutter. We are surrounded by advertising and messaging and news all day, every day. So the second piece of this was we used shame. We said you were stupid. We said you have to do it. And I think by cutting through the clutter and listening to uh, uh, that data, we were able to really create an effective campaign. I'm really proud of it. I think it saved lives. And, and so much of the award-winning campaigns uh, at the summit were campaigns that saved lives. And I think that was something it's really special to be a part of. Yeah. So I, I do think we're going to have to wrap things up very quickly. We've touched on, I think, a lot of the, the underlying themes of the conference. We've talked about the internal stakeholder. We've talked about purpose. We've talked about data. We've talked about disinformation. I did want to just end with a quick question about the midterms. And, and I think we were all... Um, and, and this plays into some of the things we're talking about. Kivit obviously is a public affairs firm, first and foremost, I think it's fair to say. Um, at the time of the conference, and really right up until sort of the, the 7th or 8th of November, we were all expecting a red wave. Um, is this another example of an election that the pollsters and the data got wrong? Um, and where's our credibility as political prognosticators um, yeah. after, after the results of the last week or so? Um, you know, uh, we talk a lot about burnout in our industry and, and people working crazy hours and long days. And I, I made a comment to a colleague that, you know, if your workday typically in, ends at, you know, 6 or 6.30, then the difference between a crazy long day and a light day is one hour either way. You finish at 5.30, you had a light day. God, I've got the whole evening. You finish at 7.30, then it might have bled into dinner. And the margins are close. And I think that's what we saw, that the margins were close, but the expectations and the expectations game 
drove a conversation. And I think that's part of the lesson for any industry is expectations matter. And we were, look, we were working with clients on the day after of a red wave of, you know, a majority in the Senate, a majority in the House. And it didn't pan out, but it didn't pan out because the polls were necessarily off. It was just, it was very close and it leaned a little bit one way or the other. You know, the polls being off one or two points is the difference between a massive majority for Republicans in the House and a, you know, razor thin. Either way, and and this is an important point for for us as an industry to be talking about with our clients. The 2023 is going to be a year of, of chaos and and um, obstacles in anything to do with any regulated industry because a divided Congress, you know, remember quarter two of 23 people are announcing Trump's already announced since we met in the summit, you know, boots on the ground in early states in summer 23. By August of 23, you've got presidential primary debates on each side of the aisle leading into quarter one of 24 of people voting. So the presidential year is here. D.C. is going to be stuck. And it just goes back to the concept that unless you are in a very small geographic market, if you as an advocacy organization, as a um, uh, or really as a, as a corporation, because advocacy organizations are political, but in many ways, but, you know, you have to be able to speak to red America and blue America, and it will be increasingly hard through 2023 to take a deep breath and remember that. And so I wish us all luck as we approach 2023. Yeah, I think that's that's going to be one of the themes um, that we have to deal with going forward is this increased polarization and, you know, the, the fact that if you have values, almost definitionally half of the people out there are going to find a way to disagree with them, and yet you can't cast them aside. Um, it's going to feed what people believe about your organization. And, um, you know, I'm I'm used to people on my side of the political aisle. I make no secret of the fact that that side is, is in America, the blue side. Um, in the UK, the red side, which doesn't confuse me at all. Um, but uh, the people on my side of the, the political are the ones who are nearly always picking on corporations for not being, um, you know, responsible enough. And now suddenly the other side is picking on them for being too responsible. Um, I, it's it's going to be a crazy world. And, and and again, if there's one overarching message from from provoke global i think and you alluded to this at the very beginning it's that the issues that we're dealing with as communications professionals are way more urgent way more sudden they they arrive out of nowhere um and way more mission critical um than they've ever been in the past whether that's you know do we pull out of russia um do we take a stand on abortion um you know do we do we use purpose to market market our products do we rely on data all of those questions are big questions that we have to answer as an industry and on on behalf of our clients um and the discussion is going to go on and on and i i'm already storing up topics for next year's conference so um i'm i'm sure that'll be just as interesting thank you so much Stephen. um I, we we've Thank had a wide-ranging conversation 
Um, I really appreciate you bringing your perspective and some of the insight into the two campaigns that picked up Global Sabres on the night. Sorry we didn't get to delve a little more into some of the other campaigns because, <laughs> as you said, so many of them um, saved and or changed lives. Um, yeah that you know i think everybody can be very proud of the work that they've been doing but uh we have to wrap up this provoke podcast um thanks again for your time and we'll be back very soon thank you thanks paul thank you all you've been listening to the provoke podcast brought to you by provoke media and produced by the international broadcast specialist marketers.